Uh, welcome back to Supreme Mist. We've been on a little hiatus, but I'm really glad to come back. And I'm especially glad to have my special guest, Rachel Barkow, here. Uh, she is the Charles Segelson Professor of Law at NYU. She's also the director of the Peter L. Zimloff Center on the Administration of Criminal Law. Um, Rachel went to Northwestern and Harvard. She clerked for the D.C. Circuit, and she clerked for Justice Antonin Scalia. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So you wrote a book called, oh, my pleasure, Prisoners of Politics. Breaking the Cycle of Mass Incarceration. So let's start with that. How big a problem is mass incarceration? What motivated you to write this book? What do you see out there that's so troubling? Oh, it's a huge problem. It's really hard to adequately state just how awful it is. You know, you have some cities in America where, you know, half the black men are incarcerated or under criminal justice supervision. So it's, to my mind, it's the civil rights, racial justice issue of our time for sure. Um, and it's just a huge affront to American notions of liberty and how we should be functioning as a society. So so I think the problem is catastrophic. It's huge. Um, and my motivation for writing the book is so I've been working in this field for two decades. And one of the things that you can't help but notice when you work on criminal justice reform issues is the politics are really screwed up. Um, it's really hard to get people to rationally think about these issues. And, you know, things become politicized so quickly and emotional so quickly that you can't really get the victories that you need that would be sensible, that would benefit everybody if it maintains itself in this political climate. And so the motivation for the book was to talk about kind of how we got here, why the politics are so screwed up, and then offer a few suggestions that would take things out of that immediate political environment so we could be more rational about it. So Rachel, um, listeners of this podcast know that, you know, I'm a con law guy, and most of my guests, not all, are core con law people, and I usually know a lot about the topic that I'm discussing with my guests. That is not true today. I don't hold myself out as a criminal law expert in any way, shape, or form. So I'm going to ask you a few questions that might sound very basic and very obvious, but I think you'll be teaching me and you'll be teaching the audience as well. So first of all, when you say the politicking around this issue is terrible and awful, could you drill down on that a little bit and explain what you mean by that? Yeah, sure. But I think you know more about this than you think, okay. probably, because uh, the Supreme Court is to blame for a fair chunk of I'm it. I'm sure. Well, you know me, <laughs> I think they're to blame for almost everything. So but go ahead. Yeah, so, <laughs> so we can get to that. Um, but so the reason that I think the politics here are so um, unfortunate is that we have policies that are really harsh, lead to all kinds of racial disparities and injustices for poor people. And they do not make us safer. So, you know, it's kind of this worst of all worlds environment. And there's this question of, well, how do you end up with that, right? How do you end up with things that really on net are just terrible across the board? And the the main problem is that it just takes one bad case. Um, and, you know, here's a recent example of that at a, at a Memphis. You know, there was a horrific uh, killing there. And Tom Cotton immediately goes out and says, this is why we shouldn't have bail reform, right? And... It's just a misleading statement that has nothing to do with barrel reform around the country. Um, but people associate it in their minds. They think, oh, my gosh, you know, this is terrible. We 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 can't have pretrial release. We need to lock people up. We need to be safe. And so people get scared and they get scared from these high profile cases. And, you know, I think everybody uh, who's old enough remembers the um, Willie Horton uh, sure. ad in the Michael Dukakis. Well, well, tell people what that was, because there's a lot of people listening to this, I'm sorry to report, probably aren't old enough to remember Yeah, that. no, I was going to get there. I know. I uh, <laughs> I remember it, but not everybody does. Yes. Um, 
But the the ad against Michael Dukakis was running for president, but he was previously governor of Massachusetts. And while he was governor, there was a furlough program in the Massachusetts correctional system. Um, frankly, he wasn't even involved in it. So, you know, it's kind of blaming him for something that I'm sure he had actually no awareness of. But there was a furlough program that would allow people serving long sentences, including life sentences, to go work jobs on the weekends or um, go out in the community and do community service. And this program had a success rate of, I kid you not, 99.9%. And it was an amazing program, right, that allowed people to, you know, show people change over time. And it allowed them to show that. And and it led to some people getting released earlier um, or getting better um, privileges while incarcerated. Um, But, you know, there's always one. Uh, So this guy, Willie Horton, is on a furlough. Um, and he assaults a couple, you know, brutally rapes and murders uh, the the woman um, and the husband survives, but, you know, becomes um, outraged, uh, justifiably so, that this happened to his family. And the case becomes the subject of an ad against Dukakis painting him as soft on crime because this furlough program exists in Massachusetts while he's governor. And, you know, people pretty widely credited that ad as being devastating to his campaign. You know, we'll never know for sure exactly why he lost, sure. but um, but a lot of people think that ad was a big part of it. Michael Dukakis thought the ad was a big part of it. And basically every politician since has thought the ad was a big part of it. So whether or not it was the death nail for him, people thought it was. And politicians since then have basically wanted to avoid their own Willie Horton, right? So you don't want that kind of ad against you, which means you don't really take positions on things that have any risk, but that's a terrible way to govern, right? Governing is about managing and balancing risks. And so in criminal law, what it means is we don't do all kinds of sensible things that on net would be great for public safety, but will have and could have the risk of running, you know, isolated incidents that are bad, but would save lots of lives precisely because it would help people re-enter re-enter society successfully so you know if we were rational about it we would say these things are horrible and we want to prevent as many horrible incidents as possible but the way to do that is to actually have some of these programs but you can't do that because you there's no political ad you know that (laughs) that you say you know my political opponent has you know not considered this very sensible program i would say like nobody want you know nobody cares about that but they do pay attention to these these ads that are like the Willie Horton one was. So criminal law has basically looked like that for decades. And and I know there's people out there who think we've had a turning point, um, you know, and there's some good, interesting recent scholarship that thinks, you know, we're, we're over that hump. I just totally disagree. I, I see it every day. Um, I see politicians afraid of that still. President Biden's State of the Union address was, you know, he wants to fund the police, fund the police, fund the police. You know, he said it three times. He just wanted to make crystal clear that he is in that same camp of let's be tough that that really vote most voters still really want to see their politicians showing allegiance to. Um, a couple uh, editorial comments and another question. Um, Lee Atwater, I believe, was the person responsible for that Willie Horton ad. And Lee, yes. and, and although obviously political campaigns in this country have always been dirty, have always been misleading, I think some people with knowledge think he really ratcheted up with that ad, that that ad actually took us into deeper swamps than we'd been in in, in the past. But I do, so I, I think there's a good argument for that, and that's really a shame. 
the reason why – we'll never know why Dukakis lost, and this is off topic, but I, it's just it's something to get off my chest. One of the reasons he lost so badly was that his campaign manager, Susan Estrich, suffers from what I call the New Haven syndrome, which is elite I, – I was, I was raised in New York, but I've been in the South for a long time. And she didn't understand America at all. And Dukakis's campaign didn't understand America at all. And frankly, I don't think Hillary Clinton's campaign, tragically, in 2016, understood America at all. So I, I think, that, you know, the Northeast is not America. And I think that's very hard for a lot of – just that editorial comment. Um, you, you want to tell me I'm wrong or do you agree or – no, I agree. And I think, you know, criminal justice issues are a big part of that. I right. think just the way you talk about it, I, I think it's just really important to acknowledge real human emotions around crime. These are horrible things that happen to people. And, you know, if you don't have a visceral reaction to that, I, I think you're just an unrelatable human being. Like, yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. You know, if you just want to talk about it in some abstract way without acknowledging what this does to people and how it devastates people, you're, you're never going to be a successful politician or reformer because these are really horrific events that everyone should acknowledge as such and want to try to eliminate. And I think sometimes you get wonky, people get wonky about it and they, they don't really acknowledge how afraid people get of crime or, you know, how they think about it. And I think it's a huge mistake. And I think you're right. I think that's a, a good example. You know, I also remember from Matt Dukakis campaign, he was asked about the death penalty. Right. Uh, and he was asked about, you know, what if someone killed his wife? And right. he immediately went into the kind of wonky discussion of the death penalty. And, and I think most normal human beings would start with how you would feel if your loved one was killed. Yes. In fact, that, that, that was what a whisper. you might want to do, yeah. like, frankly, if you're being honest, uh, to the person who did that. And, but he kind of skipped over that and he went right to the wonky part. And I think that is a good example of what you're talking about. That was so bad that it became a West Wing episode. The exact same issue. They, they, oh, is they, that right? They, I, didn't, I didn't watch the West Wing, I have to admit. Oh, my. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, that's, uh, goodbye. Nice, nice having you on yeah. my podcast. I'll, I'll oh, see bye, you. Everybody. No, I'm, there was a whole, there was a, uh, they're preparing the president in that show for a debate. And they ask him, how would you feel if your daughter was raped and killed by the death penalty? And he starts to give a wonky answer. And like, stop. Don't do that. The first thing you say is, that's a treacherous, evil, horrific act. I'd be heartbroken. I want to kill the guy. Now I'll give your answer. <laughs> it really, I was, anyway, um, so when you said the politics are crazy, I certainly agree with all of that. But I, I'm wondering how we get to the counterexample, I think, maybe I'm wrong about this, of crack cocaine. Because it feels like at one time, crack cocaine was the greatest, one of the worst, most horrific examples of, of criminal law sentencing type issues that disproportionately affected people of color. And I think we did something about that, did we not? At least, at least, at least it was discussed in the public as if this, even by Republicans, as if maybe this was a real problem. Do I have that wrong or? You're, no, you're close. Um, okay. <laughs> I'll take close. On this topic, I'll take close. <laughs> yeah, no, so I this, I think it's a good illustration of, of both our points because okay. it's going to show that there's been progress, but it's also going to show how far we are from where we actually Great. should be. Great. So with crack cocaine, crack, This is, I feel like this is a very uh, 1990s discussion we're having yeah. here. But <laughs> yeah. Well, so is the West Wing, so it's a good segue. Go ahead. Right. Crack cocaine comes on the scene in, um, you know, in the 90s, and it's immediately vilified as like the worst product that has ever existed and is hugely dangerous to communities and to people. And um, and initially, even the Congressional Black Caucus is really worried about it and wants harsh penalties. And so there's a kind of um, 
irrational. I am going to say irrational because people didn't really know yet, but sensationalized is maybe the best way to put right. it. So this like huge media reports everywhere about how awful crack cocaine is. And the way Congress responds to that is to pass legislation. Um, and actually, this is 80s, not 90s. I got my decade wrong. I was uh, so we're in the 1980s, crack cocaine. The Congress passes legislation um, where the amount of crack that you would need to trigger a mandatory minimum penalty is it's one one hundredth the amount of powder cocaine you would need to get the same penalty. Or wow. to rephrase it, you need a hundred times the amount of powder cocaine as crack cocaine to get the same 10-year or 20-year mandatory minimum. So it, that's what comes to be known as the 100 to 1 ratio, that crack is essentially treated a hundred times more harshly than powder cocaine. And it comes out of this, you know, 1980s fervor about how awful crack is. Um, and, you know, and crack is not a good drug. So I'm not like, you know. <laughs> You're not telling anybody go do crack. We get that. Right. Don't but do crack if you're listening to this don't podcast. Don't do crack, but don't do powder cocaine either. Right. Because as it turns out, they're pharmacologically the same drug. And so even though the reports were all about how crack is different, you know, we have come to learn that they're not. They have the same effect on the body. They yeah. have the same addictive propensities. Um, so, you know, with knowledge, we now know they should be treated the same. They're different in terms of how they're sold because different consumer groups tend to favor the two drugs. And so crack became a street drug. And that meant that crack was sold in kind of open air environments, which usually bring about more violence because if you're selling your drug on a street corner, you need to use guns to protect that territory. Whereas, right. you know, if you can sell your cocaine out of a hotel room or a school, right. um, it's it's easier to do it without violence. So there is a greater association of violence with crack, but it's purely because of the market and how it's sold, not because of the nature of the drug itself. So we learned this pretty soon after crack comes on the scene. There's reports by the Sentencing Commission explaining this and explaining that because it's a hundred, this hundred to one ratio is not falling equally on the population. It is falling almost entirely on black people who are getting the harsher punishments. So giving those, you know, 20 year mandatory minimums, these life sentences in some cases, because people are dealing crack, it's falling on black men, mostly black men, um, some women, but mostly black men. And, you know, they're serving decades or life sentences in prison. And for a drug that is not in any way different from powder cocaine, which was more uh, disproportionately more of a white drug. So we learned this really quickly. <laughs> and immediately the Sentencing Commission um, in, you know, in the 90s, early 90s says, wow, these drugs really shouldn't be treated like this. We should get rid of that disparity. It should be the same ratio of the drugs. Right. And they proposed fixing it. Um, but now we're in the politics of the 90s and Congress says that's terrible. Bill Clinton says that's terrible because, you know, that's the Democratic um, way in the 90s is to be as tough as the Republicans, if not tougher. And so they reject the Sentencing Commission's suggestion. Well, wait, sorry, even, sorry, Rich, the 90s and apparently 2022 with Biden yeah. saying, you know, so I'm sorry, but it feels the same thing. No, but, we're going to. That's where we. Yeah. So so nothing is done about it. It continues to pace more. And, you know, and, and while this is happening, thousands and thousands of black men are being sentenced to these draconian sentences with no rational basis. They should just not be getting the sentences they're getting because it's not uh, any worse than powder cocaine. 
So finally in 2010, so now we're talking, that's like, you know, two and a half decades later, after we've already learned this, we finally get legislation and it's compromised legislation. So it really should be a one-to-one -one ratio. They should be treated exactly the same, but you know, that doesn't happen in our Congress. We get an 18 to one ratio. Jeez. So we do get a reduction um, for, for, so the, like the glass is, I don't know, I guess it's 18 one hundredths full right. <laughs> or whatever you would want to see right. it. So we do get reform, but it's not full reform. Um, and more importantly, when Congress finally makes this change, they don't make it retroactive. So they don't say, oh, to all you people serving these sentences that you should have never been serving, we're going to give you relief. They just say, going forward, we'll change it now. Um, so you still have people serving these sentences and it takes, uh, so there were some of us, um, and I was one of these people that really urged President Obama give clemency to the people who are serving crack sentences who would not, they wouldn't get these sentences today. This is an acknowledgement they've been wrong from the beginning. You know, this is a group that really deserves relief. And, you know, to his credit, he did give clemency to a large number, um, but not all of them. Um, so, you know, you still have people still serving these sentences. And, you know, it wasn't until the First Step Act in 2019 that it was finally the kind of retroactive ad adjustment was right. allowed. So, so we're still at a place. So that long story is to tell you it's still an 18 to one ratio. Um, you know, you know, you didn't get retroactive relief when you should have. Um, and the other kind of kind of key aspect of it is that then a new drug comes along like fentanyl, and we kind of see the same hysteria go through itself again. And and that'll keep happening too, where you know. Um, drug addiction and abuse are horrible and, you know, they do lead people to behave in terrible ways that often lead to crimes. And the response to that, you know, we still just have a very reflexive reaction in the United States to think, well, let's, in let's increase the penalties, um, which really doesn't help on the um, demand problems. It doesn't really do much to get at the underlying problem. And it, and it just leads to all these other really bad consequences given the um, what it means to have long terms of incarceration. So when you talk about mass incarceration being this, you know, major, massive, huge problem in America, how do we compare to England, France, Germany, Spain, other free Western countries? My lay understanding is we incarcerate at a much higher level than any other country, any other free country in the world. Am I right about that? You are correct. Yeah. And it didn't used to be like that. In the early 70s, we looked like every other Western democracy. We had the same incarceration rates pretty much that they did. Um, so it's a relatively recent phenomenon that really starts to kick off in the 1970s. But today, where we are is orders of magnitude beyond any other country on Earth. Even more um, than China and North, even the rates are higher than North Korea and China, right? Yes. I mean, there we always have to question their statistical sure. gathering sure. information. Sure. <laughs> so, but, sure. but based on official reported statistics, we incarcerate more people per capita than any nation on earth. Okay. Here's a question that I think a lot of listeners might be interested in, but whether they are or not, I know I am. Um, it seems to me that in my circle of friends nationally, so I have friends in different cities, wherever they are, but among upper middle class professionals, um, marijuana use is everywhere. <laughs> it is, if, if it's illegal in your state, then you find a friend to go to Vegas or Boston or San Francisco to get it for you. It's just widely used. I, I, don't, I, I don't have stats, but I would be shocked if that wasn't true. Yet, in many states, we have people in jail just, I always thought that we stopped arresting people for possession. 
But I guess that's not true, right? We still arrest people for possession, and they get reasonably long sentences. Is that is that right? Am I is that part of the problem? It is part of it. It's not. Um, it, yes, it's part of the problem. But you know, if we legalized marijuana everywhere mm -hmm. tomorrow, we would still have mass incarceration. We would still have the highest incarceration okay. rate on earth. You know, so so it's a. Um, compared to the other reasons we incarcerate, it's not a huge driver, but you know, but it, it, I think it is still a problem to incarcerate anyone for something that so many people do with impunity and, right. um, right. you know, and face no consequences for. So, so it's a problem, but it's definitely not the driver. In fact, even drugs themselves, the broader category, if you've considered all drugs, um, that accounts for about 25% of the incarcerated population. So if we legalized everything, um, we would only cut our prison population by about 25%. So we'd still, we'd still maintain our uh, worldwide lead. Um, <laughs> our and, exceptionalism. And we would still be in a bad place. So, you know, like about half of the people who are incarcerated, and this is something that I think, you know, you just, we who work on reform have to just confront and be honest about. About half the people who are incarcerated are there for some kind of crime that could be characterized as violent. Now, there's a, you know, that has different meanings to different people. And sometimes an assault is like a slap and a bar fight. Right. Um, but, you know, it gets, it's an assault. And so that could be characterized yeah. as, as violence. But, but it does mean when you're th talking about criminal justice reform, if you really want to think about mass incarceration in America, you have to tackle some serious crimes, not just drug offenses, which isn't to say that some of them aren't serious, but it's, it's more than drugs. And one quick follow-up to the 25% figure that I'm just curious about. I, I assume those are direct, direct drug-related crimes, not crimes committed because someone's on drugs or someone right. is trying to get drugs. So I assume it's actually probably a larger number than 25% if you take that into account. Right, right. That's actually, that's yeah. correct. This would just be crimes that, you know, right. you're possessing, you're dealing um, so, drug offenses per so, se. So on the violent crime part, I mean, I think the, the, we, we don't have to talk about the causes of that in terms of mental health and all that, because obviously that's a big part of it. Um, you're, you, the, the problem is obvious, I think. I think it would be hard for someone to look, any, to look us in the eye and say, oh, you guys are overreacting to this. I think the numbers and the stats just make it obvious there's a major problem in America, whether it's the new Jim Crow or whether it's the new Jim Crow plus a bunch of other things. It's clearly a problem. You're now the uh, mass incarceration czar of the United States. You get, a, you get appointed to that. Where do you start I know you have some administrative law solutions. I'm curious about those. But how would you, if you really had the power to put things into place, what kind of things can we do? Yeah, I think, you know, so the first kind of fundamental. Um, and the, hold on, there's your dog. What's his name? Lucy. Oh, you see her. Oh, yeah, yeah Lucy, that's right. Yeah. We both have dogs. So those of you who are only listening to this, there's a beautiful brown dog behind Rachel named Lucy. I have a dog named Lucy. Um, Lucy's dog's last name is what? Well, she's Barco like me. So, Lucy you know. Barco. And my dog is Lucy Barker from Sweeney Todd. So we have a lot in common. Sorry. Sorry for, sorry for that disruption. It's a very serious no, issue. No, I knew it was inevitable that, that yeah. she was going to come out of her <laughs> All right. You, you, are, you are the incarceration czar. Where do you start? And what's realistic? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the first thing, the first fundamental point that I would really like to get across to people is that long sentences do not deter. So we have thrown at this problem the idea of a long prison sentence like that is the solution. And we have mounds and mounds of data that it is not. Like it just, it doesn't deter anybody. And it's not even good at incapacitation because 
people, you only need to incapacitate someone for as long as they'd be committing the crime. And most people just age out of their criminal behavior. So we're incarcerating them decades past the point that they need to be. And, and, we're, and in the process, we're actually making it harder for when they do come out for them to successfully readjust. So there's a certain point at which prison backfires and it, it becomes a public safety problem, not a solution. And you know it's hard to identify exactly when that tipping point is, but, but we're well past it with most people, honestly. So the first thing I would do is kind of try to get people to understand that, you know, get people to understand that in a, you know, today in America, 95% of the people who go to prison come out, right? Like we, we are not incarcerating most people, you know, forever. So they rejoin our society. So it's in all of our interests to make sure that they succeed when they do, like we want them to be better. And, you know, the way to do that is first of all, to shorten their sentences, not lengthen right. them, you know, and then um, the, the kind of Next thing is think about the people who don't need to be incarcerated at all. And, and that's actually a large number. Um, you know, it really is. And, and I would start with the pretrial detention population. So this is where you can come in with your con law perspective. You know, it is crazy that we have somehow gotten to the point in the United States, half a million people um, in the United States, almost half a million are incarcerated pretrial. So that's they haven't nuts. been convicted of anything. Yeah, that's it's nuts. nuts. And, you know, the Supreme Court has just basically allowed this to happen. Um, and, and I think it really flies in the face of some really important <laughs> due process. and What about innocence and proven guilty, among other things? Exactly. Um, and so, you know, it's not to say that there aren't some instances where you need to detain someone because they just present such a clear sure. danger. Sure. But that is not who is being detained pretrial. Like, we just have so many people who are detained. They're too poor to pay bail. Um and, you know, we're only one of two countries on earth that has cash bail. It's just us in the Philippines. Like no other country does that either. It's it's really wacky that we have this notion that, well, it depends how much money. Wait, can we back up? I'm sorry, Rich. I didn't know this. Can we back up? You mean England, France, Germany, Spain? You get arrested there for robbing a bank. You get arrested there for drug possession whatever, or selling drugs. You're free until your trial? Well, you could be detained, but it doesn't depend on cash bail, okay. right? There, there can be some pretrial detention, sure. but in America, it's about how much money you can pay, right? So there's like a bail amount that's set. And if you can pay it, you can go. That is disgusting. Um, <laughs> it is pretty awful. And, yeah. and it's, you know, and over time, of course, like, as you can imagine, any industry, there's a bail industry that makes a lot of money off this. And so anytime you try to fight pretrial detention, they lobby against it. They make lots of donations. Um, and I get it. You know, they have jobs uh, and they want to keep those jobs, but it's terrible. And so, you know, the first kind of place I would talk about this is with pretrial detention, getting people to understand you're innocent until proven guilty. You should be free. Um, and, you know, to, to tell people the other thing about pretrial detention that I think people don't realize is, it itself causes crimes, right? If you think about someone who's like poor and they've been arrested, if they're detained, they are going to lose their job, right? No employer is going to be like, oh, I totally understand. You're just in jail for a few days. You right. know? <laughs> like come back when you're ready, right? You're right. fired. And and you're these, these are poor people who are living at the margins. So they pretty quickly get evicted. Um, they lose custody of their kids because who's taking care of their kids while they're... So these like short stays in jail that I think the system tends to regard as not a big deal. These are devastating life events for people. And, and so we have empirical studies that have tried to look at it. Like you take two people, they've committed the same kind of crime, um, same criminal history. Only difference is one is detained pretrial and the other isn't. 
the person who's detained is going to go on to commit more crimes later because we've ruined their life um, and we've made it so much harder for them to get a job, et cetera. So, so the kind of first big picture thing is to get people to understand that, to dramatically limit pretrial detention. Like it should be the rare exception I, that that happens. So, so I, I mean, you've sold me, but as far as it being realistic, we're back to the politics of it. It's hard for me yeah. to imagine any politician saying that publicly ever. That, that we're going to let people accuse the crimes. I mean, they could phrase it differently, but it's not going to be something they're going to say publicly. Can we get, can we work on it though behind the scenes? I mean, you know, I mean. Well, that is the other kind of proposal. You made me czar, so I assumed I yes. could do it and yes. I didn't have to face re-election. <laughs> yes, you have a 20-year term. How's that? <laughs> yeah, exactly right. If I did have to face a political campaign, it'd be much harder. But yeah. I mean, that's another central thesis of my book is I personally just think it's hard to do any of these things is part of a broad political discussion. Um, right. You know, we tried in New York and, and you know, when my book first came out, I got a decent amount of pushback on the skepticism that I had towards politics because we just passed bail reform in New York and people said, oh, look, see, you know, it can be done. And, uh, you know, fast forward, we rolled back all those bail reforms here. <laughs> and, th and there's not much of that happening in the South, I can tell you that. Right, exactly. And we right. even here we rolled them back because there was a media onslaught. You know, any crime that occurred, the police would blame it on bail reform. And, you know, the reporters are like stenographers for what they say. So ha the cases the police were claiming were about bail reform actually weren't. But it didn't matter. It kind of got painted that way. And, you know, in the same way that Tom Cotton is out there today, you know, pointing to this Memphis shooting as somehow an indictment of all bail reform, that kind of thing gets out there in the ethos and it leads voters to want to reject any kind of reform. And so I think that's going to keep happening. So I think the only way that you get this kind of really rational look at what things are going is if you can take some of this out of the immediate political environment. So, you know, you create, you create an agency. It's like what you do with other issues that are a little too much for your elected leaders to be monitoring day right. to day, you give it to people who have the time and the expertise to look at it and you let them do their thing. Um, right. And and that would be the model, I think, would, that would give us the best results here. I mean, you know, you still need politics to do it because you need enough people to care about the that, issue to yeah. vote for that and do it. But but that's where I would use the political capital is to try to make some institutional changes. How much how much is a, how much uh, is a problem are, are private prisons? Because the whole notion of private prisons makes me want to vomit, but I'm ignorant. So but it just I can't even believe we have private prisons. They're terrible, but they're tiny, tiny fraction. They're, okay. um, they're no more than 8% of the entire incarcerated population is in a private prison. And okay. pretty much everything that you won't like about a private prison, you won't like about a government-administered one either. So, you know, conditions are terrible in both. Um, the, the real main difference between a private prison and a public prison is um, labor and the fact that the private prisons don't have unionized labor. And so their costs are lower. And so jurisdictions tend to like the private facilities because it keeps costs down um, because labor costs are the biggest cost of running a prison. Um, but in terms of kind of conditions, day-to-day -day operations and how they're, they're run, very similar. I the only other kind of um, significant difference between the two is Definitely higher incidence in private prisons of um, escapes. <laughs> right. Um, and so I don't think they're managed as well because they're, they're frankly, the people who work there who aren't in these unions, they're not as professional. Right. Um, and, and so there is that difference. But, but private prisons are one of those, um, you know, they're, they're kind of a distraction from okay. the main issue since 92% of the people are detained in a government-run facility. I think there are different, 
potential differences in constitutional remedies. The Supreme Court has certainly said that about Bivens. Um, I'm not sure about other civil rights type cases. Um, that's interesting because a lot of people, I, I do this um, podcast, used to be a radio show with Pete Dominic, and he's always been on this private prison thing. Um, I guess 8% is a low number. It's 8% too many, in my in, in my opinion. You know, I think it got a lot of attention, too, because um, immigration detention right. is in right. private facilities. And so right. to the extent of really key issue for, for many people is people who are detained for immigration violations. Right. Those are really dominated by private providers. But if you look at the grand scope of things, it really is a small part of it. Two more questions before we – I'm going to drill down even further into your proposals. But – how two more issues? How big a problem is race in all of this? That's one, uh, and, and two, how, the, the conditions of the prisons of the let's just call it the publicly owned prison, the ninety-two percent. Um, it strikes me that people go into prison and often come out worse because of conditions. But that's a layperson's attitude, you know, reading some newspaper clippings. Not so. How much problem is race, and how much is a problem are the conditions themselves? Yeah, they're both huge. Um, I. I it's hard to figure out how to adequately convey the racial injustice and in all yeah. of this, but yeah. um, it is, uh, you know, there's a direct through line um, in in American history <laughs> between a lot of practices from slavery to Jim Crow to incarceration in terms of, you know, figuring out a way to control black people um, and, and limit their opportunities. And for sure, uh, criminal punishment is 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 part of that. Um, and so when we think about the disparities associated with every aspect of criminal law in America, so, you know, it includes who gets stopped by the police in the first place. Sure. Um, and you're way more likely to get stopped if you're black than if you're white. And that's regardless of what you're doing. Um, you know, so it's not like, well, the reason you're being stopped is because you're engaged in criminal activity. No, these are like studies of people for things like jaywalking or for um, traffic offense. So in, in jurisdictions that, uh, so I'm in New York, it's, it's a little less car based. Yes. But, but <laughs> you know, in, in places like Georgia and yeah. California, um, where it's all about, are you stopped in your car? You know, we have study after study after study that you are far more likely to be stopped if you're black for, you know, the taillight, the the minor stuff that is just basically... Can I interrupt you for one second, Rachel? Because I, I'm really curious about something. I, I, I understand the white-black discrepancy. I, I think anybody with eyes can see that. Is there a difference between blacks and Hispanics? Black, uh, blacks and other people of color? Are there still... Is it still a much higher proportion? I'm trying to figure out, because this is very relevant to a lot of other issues I'm wrestling with in terms of race in America. Is it a person of color versus white issue or is it a mostly a black white issue? So it's it's a mix. Okay. Um, it's definitely a person of color issue. Yeah. So it's definitely the case that you're also more likely to be st uh, stopped if you're Latinx. Um, you know, right. so uh, so that is true, although um, the statistics are all worse if you're black. So it's kind of on the scale of things, yes. you know, it's, it's they're the worst for that group. And actually. Interestingly, there have been studies that show that even among people who are black, the darker your skin tone, the longer the sentence you get, for example. So, you know, even that makes among, me want to cry. That just makes me want yeah, to cry. It's really depressing. Yeah. Another one that I think people are surprised by on the police stops, the car stops, the disparities go away after dusk when the police can't see the skin tone. That makes me want to cry, so. too. Jesus. Yeah. So the studies were very clear. I mean, like you, 
you try to come up with a race neutral reason why things might be happening, right? Like you just hope maybe there's just something we're missing that explains it that's not race. And then you get these studies that show skin tone, um, complexion, how dark the complexion is, or the after dark, it disappears and you realize like, there's just no explaining this. It's, it's race. So um, and it's not just police stops. Like we see it at every stage you get, um, prosecutors make better offers to people who are white than people who are black. Um, people are more likely to get longer sentences if they're black than if they're white. And we're controlling in all these studies for the type of crime you committed and your criminal history. So something else is at work. And again, it's hard to find what that something is other than race. Um, you know, whether or not you're going to get parole um, or clemency all throughout the whole arc of a criminal case, we see the disparities over and over and over again. And they're really stark. It's not and, like and I'm it's assuming I'm assuming class can't explain it. No. OK. Um, no. Yeah, that's, that's what I thought. I mean, it's definitely true that we are disproportionately incarcerating poor people in America. You know, a lot of this is problems with the welfare state and what sure. these people that crimes it for sure. But even holding um, someone's economic background constant, you're still seeing the disparities just on the basis of race. So it's interesting. Again, this is an area of the law I don't study. So I, you know, I'm glad to have an expert on, um, you know, with, with the big affirmative action cases coming up to the Supreme Court next year, UNC and Harvard. But just in general, I've written a lot about institutional racism in America uh, on subjects I know about. Um, and I just, I'm so depressed that in 2022 America, color is still such a big factor and all much of why America is terrible. You know, the book Cast came out. I love the book. I thought it was fantastic. That author is wonderful and all that. And I like the book. And I think everybody should read the book Cast. I do, however, quibble a little bit with kind of a sub-thesis of that book. I, where, class clearly matters in America, but I think color matters more. And um, that's just, yeah. that's just, it's just pure bigotry. Is the problem of race in the, of, of racism in the criminal justice system, if you've studied this, more acute in the South and Midwest than it is in the North and the West, or is it just a problem everywhere? I mean, it's a problem everywhere, although incarceration rates are highest in the South. So, you know, you can kind of look at the old Confederacy yeah. and pretty easily track where the rates are the highest. So, but, but, you know, you don't want to kind of let off the rest of the country because in a place like Iowa, for example, enormous racial disparities. And Boston, so, you know, they too. Don't have as, would, Boston, yeah, they don't have as large of a black yeah. population, but, you know, the population that's there is being treated disparately. I mean, the other thing that makes this complicated. So there's the certain things where we could look at and we could say, you know, it is you're being stopped for no reason other than your race. The, where it gets complicated politically is it is also true that for crimes that we can feel pretty confident about the rates of offending being accurately reported by the police because, you know, there's an identifiable perpetrator and victim. You know, some some police crimes, it's like how they choose to enforce it like drugs, like what neighborhoods they go to. It's not. But for something like a homicide where it, they're not really making that up, you know, there's a dead body. Sure, you got to figure sure. out who did it. Yeah. Um, for crimes like that. Um, it is also true that there are disproportionately higher rates of offending by communities of color. And so the, this is where it gets a little more complicated because, you know, we just have to have a reckoning in America with why is that the case? You know, right. and that gets us into all the other structural biases that exist that, right. you know, it's there's all this historical um disparities that exist from educational opportunities and schools and environments that are, you know, they're devoid of jobs and any opportunities. And so, you know, in environments like that, you just have higher rates of violence. Um, but that also means that you're concentrating it 
among communities of color at a higher rate. And that complicates the political discussion because sometimes it's get, it gets hard to focus people on the fact that, first of all, there's all these disparities that have nothing to do with rates of offending, like not at all. You are literally just being stopped because you are black, not because you know, you're more likely to commit a crime. But when we start to get to the actual cases where we know the rates aren't proportionate to um, a population of a of a given group in our society, you know, then you just have to have honest conversations about what should we do there? Like, how do we invest in communities? How do we how do we address those kinds of things? And and, you know, that's where you get the politicians starting to talk about, well, we need to be tough because of a respect for those victims, you know, because right. the victims are disproportionately communities of color, too. It's right. it's it's all in the same community. And um, and so they often try to turn it into, oh, let's be tough as a way to support those communities. And that just hasn't been the case. That if everything we've done to try to address this problem um, in communities that have high rates of violence has made it worse. Um, so, you know, that's the racial justice picture is front and center for anyone who cares about this. And, and it really does require not just getting rid of the bias that exists in how we enforce criminal law, but it does require us to invest in communities to try to get at some of these underlying causes that lead to higher rates of offending in the first place. A few years ago, a um, very wealthy African-American couple moved in. Uh, we knew them from previous life, um, moved into a very nice part of Atlanta, and they had a 14-year-old son. And I know this sounds cliched, but it, and it broke my heart when they told us this, but they had to tell their son if you go out for a walk with your friends, white or black, um, but especially if you go out with other black friends in this neighborhood, you will be stopped by the police. And this is what you must do. You must stand down entirely, no matter how much you're being mistreated, because we don't want you to die. And this isn't really arrested for things that you didn't really do. Um, and, this, and this is in a very, very wealthy white part of Atlanta. It's not just communities of color, you know, and... and um, ISIS, you know, it's just it's a talk they have to have that white parents don't have to have with their kids. And it's tragic, I think. It's just tragic. Anyway. Yeah. I think the one thing that is happening now in the last few years, I think more people who didn't really understand or know this get it now Agreed. because of cameras. And yeah. now you see, people see George Floyd with their own eyes. And I don't think anyone would have believed that. Um, who didn't have personal experience with policing. So, you know, the right. black community would have believed it right off the bat. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, for people that don't have a lot of interactions with the police and understand how they treat people in these communities, I think they'd have a hard time believing what actually happened if they didn't see it with their own eyes. And I do think that finally allowing a large part of the population who didn't personally witness it, um, and for whatever reason, didn't believe the people who had, you know, who kept saying for a really long time, no, really, but this is what the police do in our communities. I think that is opening some people's eyes. And I do think that's the window for more reform is getting people to see it and understand it and want to deal with it. And I know we're not really talking about police practices here, you know, talking about mass incarceration, but as a layperson, it just seems to me a police officer who knows there are 400 million guns in America is going to have to act differently than a police officer who lives in a country where it's very hard to get a gun. I have no data oh, for that. Sure. I have no statistics for it, but it seems obvious to me. Am I just crazy or is that obviously right? No, of course that's correct. That, I, mean, I mean, we are an armed nation and it colors almost everything that follows yeah. in terms of policing and enforcement. Yeah. Um, and then to get to your second question yeah. about prison conditions, yeah. Um, so, you know, I can tie in the first part by telling you that um, 
people in prison who are people of color are treated worse than white people. So there too, you know, in terms of the tickets they get for infractions, solitary confinement rates, the whole nine yards. Um, but everyone in prison in America is treated terribly. Um, you know, we just don't invest in programs that we know would work. Um, we make it so hard for people to make connections on the outside by um, you know, we have technology now that could really help people maintain connections with loved ones. We just don't do any of that. And I think part of the problem there, you know, so certainly, again, we could blame the Supreme Court for a whole bunch of things in terms of prison conditions and what they have condoned. But, you know, a big part of it is it's when I talk to especially conservative friends, I say, can you just imagine a government program that is completely unaccountable for its results? Like completely, no one studies it. No one looks to see how they compare to each other, anything. They, they right. get unlimited amounts of money. And no matter how bad their outcomes, they keep getting the exact same amount of money. In fact, if anything, they get more. Um, and that's prisons because prisons, you know, we have recidivism rates in America of people reoffending that are, you know, like 70% super high that someone, you know, five years out is going to commit another offense. And, you know, I would think we would stop and say, what kind of terrible government program do we currently have that you go through it and it's got a failure rate of about 70 to 75%. Like that is a, that is not working. Um, but instead, when it comes to prisons, you know, the argument is usually what's well, not the prison's fault, it's the person in it, right? Like it's the individual that's in the prison, you know, they're making right. bad choices. But but we are spending money on this intervention on the theory that it should be helping it. And it's it's always making it worse. And I shouldn't say always, almost always making it worse. So um, conditions are terrible in public and private prisons. They're terrible in state and federal facilities. Um, and Part of it, I think, is just that no prison is really measured by their results. So they don't have very good incentives to ask themselves what we do inside, what are the effects outside? Their really only inquiry is what makes our job easier? And the thing that makes their job inside easier, you know, is to do things like no programming, because then you don't have to get people back and forth. You don't have to move them around. You don't have to supply it. You know, they like uh, segregated housing or solitary confinement because they use it as a stick to try to keep people in line. And they don't stop to think people who've been in solitary when they come out are really mentally of course. not okay. I mean, even um, didn't Justice Kennedy once make an offhand comment about that in a, in a case? When, yes, he I did. Mean, you know, when, he, when you get Justice Kennedy's attention on this kind of thing, People really should stay. What did he, do? he wrote a concurring opinion where he talked about solitary confinement or something? Yeah, but you know, a classic Justice Kennedy form, yeah. you know, where he would like talk about something that concerned him, but never do the thing yes. necessary. I'm teaching Bermudian next week. That's the classic case of that. Yeah. 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 And yeah. so, you know, there's a lot of that with him um, yeah. on the criminal justice front. Right. But yes, he at least did, he did he did note it. So, so I have I have a I have a crazy wild and crazy idea. <laughs> um, Czar, now that we made you czar for the day of this. Um, I, I don't know how anyone can look at this. Um, I, I've done some research on it for my blog post, but again, I'm not an expert. We have a mass incarceration, incarceration crisis. Yep. That word crisis is a buzzword that Americans sometimes respond to. Crack cocaine crisis led to that bad legislation, right? Um, um that's what we need to start shouting from the rooftops, maybe, because so much of our problems come back to how much we spend on prisons, how many people are in prison, and mostly what they do after prison, and, and also taking people off the streets who really could be rehabilitated, I think, in a non-penal way. All of that has led, would you call it a crisis? Oh, for sure. Um, just a tragic crisis, too, because I think 
you know, the, the tragic part of it is no one is getting better off from this, right? If, if you know, if this trade-off here were that we were safer as a society, then I'd say we have these really tough choices about right. what's the cost of someone else's liberty. But but the part that drives me nuts is that this doesn't make us safer. It makes us worse. Um, and so that's, it is, it is a crisis, but it's really hard to break that political resistance to, to changing it. You know, I'll just give you one example because it's the one that annoys me the most these days is that President Biden, you know, he has the clemency power, just like every president before him. And uh, many of us, like we urged President Obama, we said, hey, look, there's these people who they are serving sentences today that they won't even get because we've since changed the laws. Give those people clemency. Or there's people who are out because they were taken out of uh, federal prison during COVID, um, but they're going to get sent back as soon as the COVID emergency is declared over. <laughs> so, you know, they're right. and they're at risk of going back for years, but they're out. They've been living law abiding lives, showing they don't need to be there. They should all be given clemency. Um, all the people who would be sentenced differently today should be given clemency. People who are serving sentences that have been too long from the get go should get, you know, we and he hasn't given clemency. You know, he, he gave a handful of them so far um, to just a couple of the people who'd been released on the COVID releases and just a handful. Like there have been thousands who've been released there. And instead of just saying, yes, all of them stay out, just like a little handful. And because I think he's scared, like I think he just does not want Republican opponents to paint him as pandering well, or soft on crime or whatever. Have You know, I, I just and I think as long as that exists we aren't recognizing that it's a crisis, but, you know, in a crisis, you try to figure out in every way possible how you're going to get out of it. And everyone can have a role to play with the authority they have. But, you know, if we start at the top with him, he's done nothing. What what really, that, so that's all terrible and awful in and of itself. Um, what scares me the most about that is, is if your analysis of why he's not doing it is correct. He just may not believe in it, but if he's doing it for political reasons, it strikes me he's going to run again. This is off our. This is off. This is off the discussion we're having. But I, I think yeah, I think he's done a very good job. I'm not. But we don't need him to run. We meaning Democrats. I'm a Democrat. I self-identify that way. Progressives, liberals. Um, the last thing I want to see is Joe Biden running for president against 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 the guy from Florida, against DeSantis. Because one is going to look strong and and young and good looking and and vibrant, and one's going to look old and feeble, and it's going to be terrible. So I. I hope you're wrong about why he's not doing it almost, but I don't I know. do think there's another reason that he's not doing it. Yeah. Um, and this is a kind of, uh, I think Republicans and Democrats alike have this issue, but I think this one is a particularly Democratic kind of issue now, which is that, so he has bent over backward to defer to the Department of Justice since the Trump administration yes. completely, you know, eviscerated norms of judicial yes. uh, uh, and uh, DOJ independence. And so I think... And, and things like clemency have been run out of DOJ, which is a terrible, terrible structure that I have been, you know, railing against now for years. <laughs> um, and I've done it in Republican and Democratic administration. I've said to the people in charge, you should not have your prosecutors running your clemency program. And it's almost like a joke that I didn't have to say it. Yeah. Right? Duh. Like yeah. your, your foxes should not be guarding your hen houses. Really? Can we move the structure of the hen house someplace else? And so... You know, and usually when you talk to people about that, as soon as you raise it, you get the duh, right? I see what you're saying. And so, you know, we had political candidates um, from Amy Klobuchar to Bernie Sanders to Kamala Harris all say, yes, I will if elected 
move this out of the Department of Justice. Now, granted, Joe Biden was not one of the people who said he would do it, but Kamala Harris was. And then there was this Sanders-Biden task force, the unity task force, to try to bring in the Bernie voters. And part of the task force recommendations was, yes, we're going to take clemency out of DOJ. So I think one reason that it didn't actually happen is, so one is the politics that we were talking about, but the other, I think, is um, President Biden is like obsessively concerned with not interfering with DOJ. And so the idea of moving clemency, I think might also be something that he's not comfortable with um, just because it's it's been at DOJ. But it's been at DOJ by historical accident and happenstance. Right. It's not like right. that is like prosecution and not interfering with your political opponents and whether they get prosecuted. This one is just like bad institutional design that should be fixed. But it might be tied up in a mindset that he has that's like, I'm going to I'm going to trust DOJ. I'm going to let DOJ do their thing and I'm not going to interfere. That, that could be the other reason. Sure. Um, we are running out of time, unfortunately. I could talk about this with you forever. Um, a quick kind of current events question. So in those states with um, liberal or Democrat governors, but conservative legislatures that are going to make abortion illegal where abortion already is illegal. Is there a possibility that Democrat governors, not in their first term, I mean, most governors have term limits. Um, if they're in, they're not going to do it, I don't think, when they can run for re-election. But after that, is that a tool maybe we can see in the future? I'm radically pro-choice. Is that, I'll admit that, I mean, is that a tool governors may use to reduce the horror that's about, that's occurring right now in this country with women and doctors and people who help women get abortions being arrested? Yeah, but I think, so yes, and we've had some governors say they will. I think Michigan's governor said mm -hmm. it, um, that, you know, I'll use my clemency power. But the reason I'm not, I, I, it doesn't help me sleep at night is because if what we're thinking about is it's going to be per medical providers being prosecuted. If, you know, if we think most of the prosecutions are going to get, be against doctors and hospitals, no doctor or hospital thinking about their risk you know, insurance liability and prosecution risk is going to say, oh, well, I'm going to be prosecuted and I'm going to be convicted. But as long as this governor stays right. in power, no, agree. you know, I could get a clemency grant later. I, I just think there's no business plan that has you offering the procedure under those circumstances. So I think instead, even if they say we'll give you clemency, they'll say, but I, ca I can't I can't take that risk because what if you don't win? What if you aren't there right. um, and it's illegal? So I think uh, so I don't know that it helps that much because I think those service providers still have to say, I can't, I, I can't run a business that way on the hope that you're still in power and you can help me out later. So, you know, I think what they they could do is for the cases where um, um, individuals who get the abortion are prosecuted, you know, to make it so they don't have to serve, you know, prison terms for it. Um, they could certainly grant clemency to help alleviate that. But in terms of just like making the actual care available to people, I don't know that it helps that much just because I think it doesn't give enough assurance ex ante to hospitals and doctors. Yeah, um, I think that's probably right. Um, although I hope I hope in those states of Democrat governors, they do do this and not that it's going to be a yeah, big... Yeah, I mean, I think you use what you have and I think yeah. at least it sends a message about not wanting to see punishment in a case where it's clearly inappropriate. Right. But um, but I think, you know, it's it, it won't be the solution to the fundamental issue that those of us... right. Have with what's been happening, and my, we have five minutes left. Um, my last question is: um, I've had I've had several crim pro experts on here, uh, including, for example, Clark Nelly, who's at Cato, who's very conservative, but uh, is wonderful when it comes that's to great, yeah, yeah. Um, and and uh, a couple others. Plea bargaining is just 
run amok, right? I mean, plea bar, so, so you only have a few minutes, but can you summarize that in a couple of minutes and, and how that needs to be changed? Oh my gosh, it's so awful. So that is actually a big part when I talk about in the book how we ended up with this irrational, ridiculous yes. environment of mass incarceration. Um, plea bargaining is a big culprit because we do have this very elaborate constitutional design that I think actually makes a lot of sense before you take somebody's liberty away. Let's give them a trial before their peers, which I think is really important. I think jury trials are, are critical checks against government abuse. Um, Plea bargaining basically eviscerates that entire carefully delineated right, right. set of rights in the Bill of Rights and just, oh, they're all gone. Uh, if the government, if the prosecutor can come in and say, oh, you want to exercise that shiny trial right you have? Well, if you do that, I'm going to charge you with an offense that carries a mandatory minimum of 50 years. But if you plead guilty, I'll let you get sentenced. I'll tell the judge you should only get five. Now, and you might think I'm exaggerating, by the way, but that's that's the act, those actual cases where the bargain wow. is that 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 disparate where you go to trial. In fact, there's a Supreme Court case where it's the difference between um, guy writes uh, forges checks and oh, yeah. the yeah. prosecutor says, I'm going to charge you as a habitual offender and you'll get a mandatory life sentence if but if you plead guilty, you know, <laughs> you, you get like five years. And the court says, oh, that's not coercive. That's fine. Um, so that's plea bargaining in America. And, you know, when you think about it, even if you're innocent, you're not going to take the chance that what if the jury doesn't believe you? What if the jury, for whatever reason, goes with the government? You, you're betting that you could get a life sentence or you could get decades or you could just take what the prosecutor is offering you. So whether you're innocent or guilty, you are facing so much pressure to plead guilty. And that is how you get mass incarceration in America, because if every one of our cases of people who incarcerated actually had to go through trial, we don't have the resources for that. We, we're doing all this on the cheap um, because we're not actually giving the process that people deserve. And so plea bargaining is central, absolutely central to mass incarceration in America um, and a, a complete affront to the constitutional design. Um, and again, to go back to your question about racial disparities, all kinds of racial disparities in how plea bargaining um, proceeds against people of color uh, versus people who are white. So it is truly a disaster. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, name me another constitutional right where the court has said you can place this condition on right. its exercise. <laughs> I just think it's core unconstitutional condition doctrine. But they have carved this one out and said, for this one, you know, we're going to let right. the government throw you. For the record, there is no core unconstitutional conditions doctrine because that is one of the most messed up areas of the law yeah. that we have. But I get your point. Rachel, this has been... Well, it's been depressing as hell, but it has been, but it has been really. There are so many conversations with me, yes. Yeah. Well, I get the same thing. So I, I'm, I'm actually known as Dr. Doom and Gloom. So I, you know, that's what, that's what they call me on the internet. But anyway, thank you so much for doing this. I learned so much. I'm sure the listeners did too. And maybe we have to do a part two sometime on drilling down more on the potential solutions because I didn't get to those as much as I would like to. Um, but thank you for your insights. It's been great. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks so much. This was fun. Thanks, Rachel.